Welcome to today's podcast, Cyber Threat Intelligence, taking the conversation in a more productive direction. With cybersecurity top of mind with most risk professionals, a lot of attention is being focused on the forensic examination of breaches. Unfortunately, the threat intelligence produced from these deep dives does not seem to be able to stop the breaches as adversaries are staying one step ahead of those trying to prevent them from succeeding. Even the information sharing approach has not been able to keep up with the ever-evolving sophistication of bad actors. Today, Rain founder David Lawrence sits down with Jeff Costelli, Executive Vice President Federal at Endgame, to discuss how threat intelligence can be used to inform the development of more effective breach prevention and detection and faster eviction of intruders after a cyber attack. David, I'll turn it over to you. Greg, thank you, and Jeff, special honor and privilege to speak with you. Um, why don't we begin a little bit um, with your career? Uh, you obviously didn't start uh, with cybersecurity. Uh, you had a very distinguished career uh, in the government, both here and overseas. And maybe you can just do a quick introduction um, just about the, uh, uh, the spectrum of the different roles and responsibilities you've had. Sure, David, and thank you uh, to you fellows at Rain for uh, for having me on today. It's an honor and privilege. Um, I spent 30 years in the national security environment, uh, much of that overseas. But uh, at the latter part of my career, I got deeply involved into into adopting uh, cutting edge technology into the uh, national security establishment, and was uh, a leader both in the offensive and defensive, uh, what we call cyber today world and uh, found that to be a very challenging environment, still is today. And, uh, and then I retired a few years ago and uh, ended up here at Endgame. And Jeff, you and I have had a chance not only to uh, work together in the space of cybersecurity, uh, you've been gracious enough to be a thought leader on various panels and we've now written on the subject uh, together. Uh, perhaps you can just sort of address so the history of the cybersecurity issue. Uh, it's been with us for more than 20 years. Just your perspective in terms of uh, sort of where the issues are going, where we are today, and why we are where we are. Sure. I would say as, as recently as just a few years ago, cybersecurity was uh, – mainly talked about as a sort of nation-state versus nation-state uh, issue. Um, certainly, uh, uh, there were large corporations that were also involved and victims of it, but uh, it was mostly about stealing IP or secrets from, from your partners, uh, or not partners, from your adversaries and your competitors. Um, and, Actually, at, uh, times, at times from your partners as well. As well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the tools to do that were, were, were very tightly kept and highly restricted and only available to the most sophisticated of, of actors, either nation-state or, in some rare cases, criminal enterprises. And what's, what's happened over the recent years is there's been sort of two major developments. One is the, the, uh, the availability of very sophisticated hacking tools uh, has, has become ubiquitous. Um, even the uh, even the most primitive and ill-educated uh, hackers can now go online and find very very sophisticated tools to use at very reasonable prices on the dark web, and be much more powerful than uh, than uh, one would have imagined just a few years ago. 
Uh, and the other thing is um, we used to call uh, damaging another adversary's computer networks, computer network attack in the old days. Um, it was only something that was done, you know, at wartime and, or even contemplated at wartime. But what's happened now is a lot, many of those destructive tools, again, like the other tools, are very uh, readily available. Uh, and hackers are, are, not, are using them uh, for criminal purposes with a very damaging intent. Uh, ransomware is the most obvious uh, recent development in that regard. But uh, entities, whether government or commercial, are now very vulnerable to, uh, to the uh, malicious adversary, not just stealing their IP or, or, uh, or their secrets, but uh, actually damaging it, or in some cases worse in the sense of changing it so they can't rely on it anymore. Uh, and that's a, that's a development that's uh, far broader now than it was just a few years ago. So as we think about this, um, and again, um, you've been an eyewitness to the evolution of the threat. Uh, obviously, as you say, the tools are more ubiquitous now in, in the dark web. They're not only more ubiquitous, they're cheaper and they're more individuals who are available for hire. Uh, the nature of this is uh, maybe no different than other successful business ventures. Um, there's been a great deal of success in terms of the hacking uh, industry and you know people have come around and seen the opportunity to make money but obviously part of this issue Jeff is the fact that progress technology etc has increased the pace uh, of our online activities and our how we speak how we store information how we share information etc even Quite frankly, uh, there are legislative mandates about records being digitized. And so we put more and more online and love to get your perspective about whether you think there has been the requisite thought uh, involved in thinking about while we're making the progress and making everything more accessible and shareable and we're accelerating the speed in which information flows, whether there has been the necessary thought and the necessary investment in the security infrastructure? So until recently, the answer to that, in my opinion, would be no. Um, the Internet, as we all know, was originally conceived to be something to share data with, not to protect it. Uh, and so security was never built into the concept from the beginning and has always been sort of bolted on uh, from the very start. And as it's gotten bigger and wider and more, more uh, versatile, uh, for sharing and for collaborating, it's become more and more vulnerable because security is an, has been an afterthought. Uh, just ask your CIO, your CIO, your CISO at any major corporation or entity. He or she has, you know, dozens of different security products and sensors deployed across his network, trying to find one that one or two that will actually help him, uh, because it isn't sort of ingrained in how it was built to begin with. Uh, so. You know, that just slows him down. It slows their networks down uh, because they have to have so much, so many different uh, applications and sensors on there. It uh, frustrates their management, uh, and it's a, it's a really big problem. And, uh, and when you look at the other side of the coin with how fast, I mean, speed is by far the most important characteristic in cybersecurity today, how fast the adversaries can take advantage of you, 
it's it's a it's a serious problem. And that's why you know here at Endgame and me personally, we advocate a very agile sort of single sensor versatile approach to uh, to cybersecurity uh, that allows you to do as much as possible on the endpoint without uh, without slowing the rest of the network down and uh, not uh, not bolting on yet another capability under your poor CISO's back to try to try to keep his, get his job done and keep his job. So th you raised a couple of important points. And I want to actually unpack your statements and and, um, and lead to a question. But uh, take it as a given. Um, we are we continue to progress and put more and more of our activities online. We rely more and more on our networks. Number one, two. Um, the information superhighway that we rely on was not built for security or these threats. It was built, as you say, for accessibility and uh, and speed. Uh, third is the fact that uh, you have adversaries who are increasingly creative, proactive, imaginative, and uh, as you say, agile. And so we often find that we're fighting yesterday's battles as opposed to looking ahead. In addition, we have treated this risk, um, and I'll use it a, a crime because actually it is a crime, whether it's fraud or theft or espionage or some form of uh, destruction, um, sabotage, terrorism. We have treated this in a way that uh, very, very different from other crimes. Uh, we have treaties around other crimes. We have law enforcement pacts with other nations. We have the ability to apprehend people, to thwart them. Uh, but that has yet to take place in, uh, in the cybersecurity world. In fact, to the contrary, the people who are hacked are often the ones who are prosecuted um, with uh, fines and penalties and lawsuits and uh, enforcement actions, uh, which, uh, you know, find fault with their systems. And the question here, Jeff, is when you think about responsibility for security, if this is an omnipresent threat and everybody is exposed, where does responsibility for cybersecurity reside? Where should it reside? So I guess it depends on how you want to interpret that question, but um, at the tactical level, it resides within your own enterprise. You can't count on the government to provide it to you. You can't count on uh, other entities to provide it to you. You, you, have to, you have to build that into your enterprise from the, from the outset. Otherwise, uh, you're going to be very vulnerable and end up being punished, uh, as you described, for, for not conducting proper cybersecurity. I, at a larger sort of strategic level, I think the responsibility is a joint one between the private sector and government. Uh, the private sector has enormous resources, uh, both human and technical, to develop cybersecurity solutions. And they need encouragement from the government in order to do that, uh, not expectation or not threat of punishment. And the government has a lot of resources, but not so much on the technical side in the cybersecurity realm. And, but they, they have the ability to make it easier for the private sector to partner with them not just in sharing, but in the development of real-time capabilities to stop bad actors. Um, there's too much 
emphasis right now on the government side and on the commercial side with what we call threat intel or info sharing because that's like driving down the road looking in your rearview mirror. Those are all things that already happened and what's going to happen to you next isn't going to look like one of those. Um, so if the government you know, invested more time and effort in enabling the private sector to develop real-time versatile uh, capabilities to stop cyber uh, attackers uh, who are already breached their network, then both sides will benefit a great deal and will spend less time trying to punish one government punishing the private sector than private sector complaining the government's not helping them. Um, so I think it's a joint responsibility. Uh, I think years ago I heard a senior from uh, Microsoft come to town literally 15 years ago and propose a Manhattan-style project to uh, to government about you know what we today call cybersecurity. He called it something different back then, uh, and it fell on deaf ears. Um, and so we're in the situation we are in today because we're we're focused more on compliance and punishment for non-compliance. Uh, than we are in actually solving the problem. And, you know, it's it's something that really needs to change today. And, Jeff, um, another, we'll call it axiomatic um, fact here, is that as many of the smartest people in the room have said, uh, whether you get hit, whether there's a breach, is less a matter of uh, will it happen than it is when and how bad and what will be involved in the repairs. And I know you have, you know, in the evolution of your thinking, your approach, your working with technology here and thinking about the threat, you have a somewhat unique um, perspective here, which is that uh, almost to accept the inevitability and what really matters here is how quickly you can detect that you've been breached, respond to it, and stop it. So you take it as a given that these things will happen and the ability to mitigate, the ability to obviate, you know, the, uh, the nature of that threat is really in reducing the response time, the, the identification and response time. And I thought maybe you could share that perspective and some of the work you've actually been doing with Endgame. Sure. Um, so first and foremost, the by far the weakest link in cybersecurity is a human being. Um, Somebody in your network's going to click on the wrong site, download the wrong thing, usually unintentionally, or just make a mistake that's going to let the adversary in. If, if you have a network that's you know connected to the internet, or perhaps even if it's not, um, somebody is going to make a mistake. I guarantee you, uh, and the adversary will have a foothold in your network. So it only makes sense as long as you have human beings using your network that you should assume that you have some form of breach and operate beginning with that assumption. Uh, so there's a couple of very important uh, principles that you have to uh, uh, understand when doing that. One is if the adversary is already there, he knows what your security posture looks like. He's going to do his own reconnaissance of your network and find out what you're using, what products are there, because they're all listed. Uh, and then he's going to devise his capability to bypass that or use one he already has so that he can burrow deeply into your network and then take his time exploiting it and damaging or stealing from you. Um, so our, our position and my position is that you have to make that assumption going in. So A, why make it easy for him to know that you're there? 
uh, you should have a you should have a defensive posture that allows you to be as stealthy and agile as he is inside your network, so that he doesn't know that you're there and that you can uh, react, find and react to him before he knows what's going on. And the other is, you should operate from the assumption that whatever he brought in and whatever he's bringing in isn't in any signature or IOC that indicator of compromised database that you may have. It's something new, and so you need to look for what we call techniques. You know, it's not it's not just open season when the hacker, you know, spearfishes one of your employees. He has to do certain things in order to migrate across your network and to exploit it. And that, that's unavoidable. There are bottlenecks that he has to go through or she, uh, you know, every time that happens. And so our approach is not to look for signatures or IOCs, but to, but to detect those behaviors that are tied with that kind of a technique. And you can do that in real time. Uh, new, new malware comes out, new, new uh, uh, methods come out, but they still have to do all those things once they're in your network. So if you sit on those, and look for those, then you have a much higher chance of detecting them in as close to real time as possible and doing something about it. Uh, and so that's what our approach is, real time active defense inside your network in a way that, uh, that evades the adversary from uh, detecting what you're doing and stops him from uh, migrating across your network and doing damage in the what is today the average over 150 days between uh, breach and detection in most large corporations. And that's, uh, that's devastating. You're, you're dead in the water if you allow that to happen to you. Okay. And Jeff, I know uh, you've worked with and collaborated um, with the government on this particular thesis. And maybe you can um, discuss a little bit about how you've been able to reduce the time between um, an actual breach and the detection. Sure. So, if, for example, if you, uh, um, if you sit on uh, techniques and or you have uh, machine learning to detect malware that's not based on signatures, you're actually, you're actually seeing it happen in real time. You know, you'll get an alert that uh, someone tried to do what's called process injection, which is putting injecting malware into a critical process on your operating system that you can't shut off and that he burrows into and therefore can operate from there. Uh, and, you know, that's very hard to uh, extract, extract an adversary from there uh, unless you use a technique-based approach. And so we have found that to be very successful. Um, there's been a bunch of, you know, unfortunately too many recent breaches. There's been the DNC one. There's been one called ODNF, which has attacked the uh, uh, financial sector with millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars of losses, and a one right after that called Drydex with, uh, with equal, uh, equal devastation. Uh, and then there's a, a allegedly Chinese APT that's been out uh, uh, working uh, the financial and other, other sectors as well called uh, Net Traveler, I believe. Uh, and what we do when, to make sure our thesis is uh, valid is every time those uh, breaches are discovered by another party that's not using Endgame uh, and they publish the results of the malware, we take it and we attack our platform with it. And uh, without exception today, it uh, lights up our platform like a Christmas tree. So we're very confident that our approach is, uh, is uh Accurate in real time and uh, and very uh, efficient in catching uh, catching the bad guys before they're allowed to do much damage. We, okay, we've so even built. We a, have, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Jeff. 
I should say we, we've even built in a capability to uh, de to uh, prevent malware from even executing on the box. Uh, most uh, malware prevention capabilities require a small amount of execution by the malware before they can analyze it and detect whether it's uh, uh, malware or not and stop it. And that basically opens the door uh, and you'll see within a day or two of, of fixes to that type of a security product that uh, evasion techniques are published by the industry. Um, so that opens the door for the adversary to, uh, a sophisticated adversary to move right in. In our approach, uh, we have that capability, but we also have a capability that actually uh, works at the chip level, at the Intel chip level, and detects malware before it's even allowed to execute on the operating system and stops it there. So, again, we're talking about real time and speed in order to uh, in order to frustrate the adversary. Right. So, Jeff, um, one of the things you and I have spoken about is the importance of simplicity. Uh, in dealing with cybersecurity issues, and simplicity has been missing. Um, a variety of companies have implemented some very, very expensive approaches. Um, there is a lack of simplicity, both in terms of allowing people to know what they need to know. Uh, there certainly is. There's no 911 for people to call when they have a breach. And uh, just drawing from today's headlines, uh, which underscores the fact that nobody is safe, um, uh, there are claims that WikiLeaks is posting confidential information that was hacked uh, from the CIA. And as you think about um, on the board level, the C-suite, they're looking at this and uh, the variety, again, there are a variety of reasons why uh, information um, is sought. Um, there's financial fraud, there's confidential market-sensitive information, there are trade secrets, intellectual property, uh, there are blueprints about uh, new sort of designs around our uh, military and aerospace. And as you think about um, applying simplicity, obviously you, you, you've threaded the needle on technology in terms of detection. Uh, I've also heard you speak about the importance of enterprises understanding what information actually represents their crown jewels, segregating their information in ways that prioritize the security that they put around it, taking some things offline. So the non-technological aspect of managing information and data uh, in a world where nobody is safe. And maybe you can share some of the insights around that as well. Sure. So. It's a good point, David. It's, you know, the more you have to protect, the harder it is, right? So uh, the more discipline an entity, whether it's government or private sector, uh, applies to making sure that its, uh, its crown jewels are kept in a secure way as possible, preferably offline and firewalled off, uh, the higher the chance they have of not being uh, badly breached. Um, there are, of course, humans in that loop everywhere, uh, and that's why humans have been the weakest link since time immemorial, that uh, if you have that problem, there's, there's little you can do to, uh, prevent your, to uh, protect yourself. But the, the, more you, the more discipline you have in protecting your, your IP and your, and your secrets, obviously, the more successful you're going to be. And it is, it's very hard to do because seniors and whatnot are going to want their access to the information. They're going to want it easy. Uh, and if the C-suite is showing less, 
enthusiasm for uh, for that type of discipline, it's going to trickle down through the enterprise and uh, res you know have disastrous results. So, I believe you know in that regard for your question, David, that the leadership of the C-suite by showing the way to the rest of the company, how important this is, and behaving accordingly is critical. And I have to tell you, the results on that are very mixed. Um, uh, how many times I've heard a CEO go, I don't even use my computer, my secretary does all that for me, or I don't know how to use this, someone get in here to do that. That's That has such negative repercussions across the enterprise because it tells the rest of the enterprise they don't care. Uh, and, or they don't know anything about it, so why should it be important to them? So educating the C-suite, getting them beyond you know, just the fundamentals of understanding what cybersecurity is, is, is critical to, uh, to bringing a higher level of a security discipline across the company. Okay, so Jeff, you've mentioned the human element several times. Uh, maybe you can share some insights when you say educate, train. What should people know? Uh, what should people know who work for the government? What should people know who are work, working with uh, leading enterprises? Well, there's the obvious. You know, don't click on a site that you don't uh, don't recognize. Uh, and be very careful. You know, on a lot of spear phishing is in fact spear phishing is defined as as sending an email to someone pretending to be someone they know, but there are indicators that you can uh, see in that process whether the email is signed or whether the address is actually the actual address that the person says it is uh, to protect yourself. Uh, when traveling, you should have your own Wi-Fi. Don't use a hotel uh, Wi-Fi network or a conference Wi-Fi network. Uh, they are notorious uh, for being hacked. Uh, and I was just talking with a colleague of mine here earlier about you know, putting a sticky over the microphone and the camera on your uh, on your. Uh, uh, computer. Uh, those are very simple things, uh, but they're also good gestures. If the rest of the again, getting back to the C-suite, if the rest of the company sees them doing things like that, then they're going to follow suit. If they're not, they're not, uh, and the level of security is going to go down. Um, I'm not sure what else I could say on that topic. All right. So um, there are certain you know primary lessons, and you know, uh, I'll, Jeff and I have written on this. We'll to a link uh, to the article uh, in terms of some of the things that for people to keep in mind. Uh, in the interim, Jeff, it, it is rather amazing that when we have a issue that affects so many people and so many enterprises, it's been labeled a national security threat. It's, uh, there's a great deal of concern about our critical infrastructure, uh, that you know, cyber attack um, that causes significant damage uh, across the board on a national level is also not a matter of if, just when. And yet, I see a lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of CISOs, um, you know, who are focused on trying to sort of protect their home turf. What I am not seeing is the prioritization of the issue as a national security matter, as something where, you know, there's actually leadership. Uh, I'm not seeing it in the policy front in terms of negotiating as part of trade trade deals. I am not seeing it as part of um, the information flow to make sure that institutions know what they need to know and people know what they need to know. I don't see the response mechanism. Uh, I read an article not too long ago questioning whether we need a whole new internet built, one that actually you know deals with security issues. And I, I guess the, the question here, it just kind of feels like um, 
without sounding too cliched. We continue to live in the wild west where if there is a sheriff, he's, he's 300 miles away and maybe you'll see him in two months. And uh, people are arming themselves for their own defense. And that still doesn't work out too well. And curious what it would take for a sea change here, Jeff. What do you think is necessary to maybe acknowledge this and treat this as we do all other risks, including pandemic? I mean, when the flu season starts or there's the risk of Ebola, I'm seeing a greater uh, marshalling of uh, governmental efforts and information than I do against these very, very pernicious attacks that are causing very significant damage. And quite frankly, it's it, it really is a hidden tax on all companies that is diverting money away from a variety of things, including innovation and, and you know, day-to-day business. Yeah, so, you know, it wasn't too long ago, just two or three years ago, people talked about a cyber 9-11 or a cyber Pearl Harbor um, that, that would need to be the uh, triggering event for the country to become serious about that. Uh, I disagree. I think in some ways we've already had it. We had a nation state interfere with our election and, and uh, upset the entire country. Uh, and uh, it didn't, I mean, I don't think it would have changed the result of the election, but, but it was a wake-up call for everyone without actual the type of damage people envisioned in, in a cyber 9-11 or a cyber Pearl Harbor. Um, I think we're more like the frog in the pot of wire, water that gets boiled uh, very slowly. Uh, this is happening to us now. We are at cyber war. We are suffering on a daily basis. Um, and we are totally wrapped around the axle about what's called attribution. Uh, unlike in any other war, in this one, it's hard to say who did it to you. Um, that's why I have a problem with the, the analogies to nuclear deterrence and the nuclear strategy. And, and cyber, in the current environment, using the nuclear analogy, everyone has nuclear weapons and everyone's using them all the time. It's just, it's just not an analogy that works. Um, uh, and then, and they're able to use it because there's no attribution. Yet we focus, you know, who did it, who did it, who did it, how are we going to get them, how are we going to punish them? Uh, and while that's an admirable goal, uh, the real goal is to learn how to defend yourself better in real time, regardless of who the uh, attacker is. Uh, and so, uh, whether that's going to whether that's going to result in a pandemic or a failure of a bank or uh, you know a blackout again in New York, um, the 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 way to deal with it is is not to react after it's happened, but to be more agile and flexible at in real time uh, to prevent it from happening to begin with. And uh, that's, in my opinion, the only way to make success here. And if the government wants to help, you know, achieve that, then uh, I think the government can have a very, uh, very effective uh, role. I think the, the article you wrote, David, which you kindly gave lots of people uh, co-authorship to, as, uh, as I think I described it, Hamiltonian in scope. Um, has a lot of great ideas of how a way the government can uh, can help in that regard, but uh, this is this is a problem that we're going to solve together and not have solved for us by the government or by the private sector. All right, so I would echo that thought, Jeff, and uh, your contributions in the article were significant. Uh, let me sort of put you um, in a position of being a little bit of a futurist uh, as you look down the road. Um, 
six months from now, a year from now, several years from now. Um, what do we need to do? And maybe sort of correlated with that is, what's your next big idea? Um, how are you thinking about this and uh, the types of approaches you think are going to be necessary? Well, that's an interesting question. So uh, I, I think what we need to do is have a better public-private partnership that's focused on on technology and not on info sharing or blame. Uh, whatever we can do to achieve that is, uh, is I think, the most important thing. One of the problems we have today is the, the most powerful private sector corporations that can help in this regard are, in fact, multinational corporations with <clears throat> shareholder interest all around the world, not just the United States. And in order to get them on board to help us with our own national security, we have to persuade them that it's in their interest to do that. Uh, and that's not as easy it was as it was in the old days. Uh, and the only way to do that is to provide them the kind of support that would encourage them to do that, not subpoenas or demands that they uh, that they fix a problem. So that's a you know looking several years down the down the road, uh, that problem is going to get worse if the government doesn't figure out how to work with those corporations better, because uh, they are they are powerful entities in and of, in and of themselves with global reach and global capability that in some ways, you know, dwarfs, uh, dwarfs the government's ability. Uh, and finding the right partnership in that regard, in that context, that global context, uh, is critically important. Um, Technology-wise, as you said, it's, it's a wild west. It changes every day, <clears throat> which is why it's important to have a technique-based approach to cybersecurity. Um, and, uh, you know, who knows what's coming around the corner, you know, next year or five years from now. We all talk a lot about quantum computing, which seems to keep getting kicked down the road five years, every five years. Uh, that will certainly be a major game changer when and if it does happen. That will completely uh, change and upset the, uh, both the security uh, environment as well as, as well as just the efficiency of how we do our everyday business in life. Um, so, yeah, I know I'm going back to the same point, but the public-private partnership is, is, I think, the key thing to focus on over the next several years. So, um, Jeff, we together have talked about the importance of that partnership, and I agree with you on a multinational uh, basis, the ability to bring governments uh, into alignment around this issue. But one of the things that... Uh, you know, we, we identified when we reviewed President Obama had a uh, commission of some very, very smart people that delivered a report in December about the state of cybersecurity and what might be needed. Uh, it was interesting that in conducting their various meetings and interviews, one of the findings, which was not really highlighted, but nonetheless was there, was the fact that many of the chief information security officers and many of the leading technologists and um, heads of technology company at least privately expressed their distrust for the U.S. government. And uh, remarkably, as one commissioner noted, uh, many said that they uh, distrusted the U.S. government at least as much, if not more, than places such as uh, China and uh, Russia. And 
it seems to me if we are going to drive that type of collaboration that you outlined, which is necessary, something has to be done on that end. So while you've spoken about the human elements of this, there clearly are some very human elements that seem to stand in the way or behavioral elements, uh, simple factors such as trust, empathy, et cetera. And I'm curious whether you have any insights or thoughts about how uh, that particular finding in the commission report could be addressed. Well, that's a tough one because it is a it is a very broadly held opinion uh, in uh, in the private sector, and you know, somewhat disturbing to hear, you know, it's such that it's held at at, at levels that we would think uh, I should say are, are less radical. Um, and so that's a that's a, a damning uh, uh, conclusion uh, for how well the government's done so far in that regard. Um, I think some of the ideas you have in your in your paper about uh, about developing teams that are able to support the private support the private sector as opposed to investigate and punish the private sector uh, in times of crisis or in before crisis with uh, with bringing. Uh, resources and capabilities uh, that they may not they may not all have certainly the large corporations do uh, is a is a great idea um, as well as uh, you know sharing learning not not signatures and IOCs but sharing learning about uh, techniques and behaviors of the adversaries uh, is critically important and those are the kind of gestures that the government can do to uh, to build that trust back up. Um, you know, there's always going to be the role of the government to punish criminals, and if corporations or individuals are behaving in a criminal fashion, they deserve to be prosecuted. But if that's the only thing that gets the public's attention, then that's what they think. That's what they think the only role of the government is. And in the space, in, a, in the sphere of cybersecurity, it can't be just that. Uh, I said I have one more question, and uh, we'll try to do a summation around this. Um, as you think about uh, the source of the threats. Uh, and as you say, attribution is very, very difficult. Um, it's one of the great advantages of being involved in cybercrime. You can work remotely, you can work anonymously, you can work cheaply, and uh, most importantly, you work with impunity, or largely with impunity. There are very few people who have been caught. But nonetheless, um, you know, in light of the work you have done, uh, both in the private and public sector, uh, clearly, you are seeing some indications of the venues from which these threats emanate. And I was hoping maybe you could share some of those insights uh, because, um, in addition, as business becomes global and people travel all around, uh, there are probably some lessons as well that you can um, share with people about uh, sort of how they, um, what they bring with them, their handheld devices. Uh, where where they're operating and where they're going to, and uh, the reasons why they might be targeted. Sure. So you know, giving the attribution question, you know, I think we all reasonably can agree where the major threats are coming from. Uh, it's difficult to prove that in a court of law, which which makes makes that a, a different problem. Um, but it's it's pretty obvious that the that the Outside of criminal groups, which are oftentimes tied to these countries, these nation states, um, it, it, 
I think the rule of thumb is if you're going to a country that has a really bad human rights record and a lack of uh, lack of the things that we take for granted in our constitution, you better be really careful about your cybersecurity because they are going to be all over you. You know, take a take a clean laptop. Don't take your regular one and uh, give it back to your IT guys when you return to be forensically uh, uh, reviewed. Uh, take a different phone. Um, don't take the one you always use because you you will be attacked in those places and you will have your data taken from you and there will be a little bit you can do about it. So the rule of thumb is if, if you're going to a country with that kind of record, uh, it's your own fault if you take your regular working laptop and your regular phone with you because you, you will be a target uh, whether you like it or not. Um, Otherwise, just you know, good security practices by using you know two-factor authentication and virtually everything that you do, uh, using your own MiFi. Those are all uh, all practices that are uh, very uh, very effective uh, and very practical and not very expensive. Okay, and I'd like to also point out, as uh, as I know you've noted. There's basically there are very few places you can go for that kind of trusted information. The State Department's pretty good at uh, communicating um, sort of what the risks are in particular states. Uh, CDC and others do a pretty good job on the health side. Uh, I haven't yet seen a particularly authoritative and informative um, centralized source for cybersecurity, whether you're here at home or abroad. Uh, That's Jeff, a very good this point. Is, uh, yeah, this has been um, terrific. And what I'd um, like to sort of um, finish note on is I know you're doing continued thinking, and you're you're one of those uh, sort of honest brokers between the government and the private sector. Uh, if I had to push you and uh, say, okay, what might be the next thing that people should expect, can't expect? Um, in terms of uh, the nature of this threat, uh, what do you what sort of keeps you up at night? What would that be? So, so I don't want to be a, a doomsday speaker, but if you're if you're if you're thinking about worst case scenarios, to me it's less the uh, ransomware you know attacking and destroying your data or even stealing your IP. It's the changing your data so that you can't rely on it anymore. Going in and you know, it, it's is my plan for my whatever widget that I'm making is it not accurate anymore? Because someone came in while we were all away and changed some of the math in there. Is my uh, is my are my banking records accurate anymore? Uh, not in a way that's obvious that you got your money stolen or whatever, but uh, reducing the people's um, confidence that the digital data that virtually rules their lives today. Uh, is no longer reliable, and that's 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 to me the real nightmare scenario. You know how do you how do you ensure that the American people and the people of the free world can depend, you know, reliably on the data that's made available to them by the private sector or by the government? Because that's at as at risk as as anything else is. And so the integrity of that data is uh, is is one of the things that keeps me up at night, which is you know obviously why we need to up our cybersecurity game. And Jeff, if I were going to offer the flip side of that coin, if you were an adversary nation state particular group and you wanted to deliver a very significant blow to trust, confidence, 
the operation of our businesses, our financial markets, um, our government, our military. Um, that's the attack that might be coming. Certainly, I mean, you could you could say that that's partly you know what happened with the election this year. People's people's confidence and whether those results were accurate or not, you know, on both sides of the aisle uh, during the during the during and after the campaign, we're calling the question, uh, and that you know, undermines our fundamental you know democratic principles here. You know, one of the other things I've told people is in this domain is that we all as as Americans count on so many things to work for us every day. The lights, the roads, your utilities, and while many of those are operated by the private sector, we count on the government to make sure that we get those things. Uh, And if we don't get them or we can't rely on them to be accurate or on time, then the fabric of our society is going to fall apart. Uh, Because if you can't can't count on your government to ensure that you get those basic needs, you're not going to be loyal to that government anymore. Uh, And so, to me, that's that's the uh, that's the most worrisome thing, long range, not this year or next year, but uh, in our children's lifetimes for sure. Uh, Jeff, a uh, great insight, and uh, one thing I will share with the audience: if Jeff is thinking it, uh, you better believe some of the highest levels of other governments and other organizations are also thinking it. And so these are particularly helpful perspectives. And uh, the transition is from fake news to fake data. That's the concern. Indeed. Well, in some ways, they're the same thing, right? Yes, exactly. That's exactly the point, right? And if, uh, as it is now, uh, a crisis in confidence in the election, crisis in confidence in our news sources, a crisis in confidence in uh, other things to come. So... Uh, Jeff, uh, as always, a privilege and honor. Thank you, and uh, thank you, thank you for your service both in the public sector and the private sector. Well, thank you, David, for having me on. It's been a pleasure.